0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Between the biggest American art museum news in several years and an unprecedented American exhibition of one of the most important painters in art, boy, do we have a show for you this week. We'll start with Giovanni Bellini, Landscapes of Faith in Renaissance Venice, and its curator Davide Gasparotto. The exhibition, which opened this week at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, features 12 paintings and one drawing that explore Bellini's use of landscapes within his religious pictures. The Getty has lined up blockbuster loans of paintings that rarely travel, including many from Italy. The exhibition is on view through January 14th, 2018. Its smart, richly illustrated catalog was published by the Getty, and it's a steal. Amazon offers it for just 27 bucks. On the second segment, two extraordinary gifts of art and a 20,000-volume library to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Yesterday, the MFA announced that Rosemarie and Ike Van Otterloo and Susan and Matthew Weatherby have promised their collections of 17th-century Dutch and Flemish art to the museum. The gift of 113 works by 76 artists is the greatest pledge or gift of art to an American art museum, since Leonard Lauder promised his Cubism collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2013, and to find something that ranks with those two, you've probably got to go back into the 20th century. The gift includes tremendous portraits by Halls, Rembrandt, and Dow, five Jacob van Roysdales, A rich trove of sea and riverscapes, three on Steens, four Dutch Protestant church interiors, genre scenes, floral still lifes, winterscapes, and multiple paintings by Bruegel and Rubens. Ronnie Baer, the MFA's senior curator of paintings and a top Dutch Golden Age expert, will join me to discuss the gift. But first, Davide Gasparotto, after the break. Celebrate Pacific Standard Time L.A.L.A., an ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles, at a special event on Saturday, October 14th, from 1 to 9 p.m. Artist interventions, rare short films, curator-led tours, and DJ sets lead up to a mesmerizing evening concert by Ecuadorian-American electronic musician Elato Negro, all amid the Getty's stunning architecture and breathtaking views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances Getty.edu slash 360. The most exciting and critically acclaimed exhibition of the fall season is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Items is Fashion Modern explores 111 garments and accessories from doorknocker earrings and the little black dress to the bucket hat and the white t-shirt that have had a profound impact on the world over the last century. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Davide Gasparotto, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Uh, hi, hello. Thank you very much for having me.
0: As I mentioned in the introduction, the exhibition is built around the landscapes in Bellini's paintings. Of all of the various Bellini shows you could have done, why was landscape the thing that interested you?
1: I think that the landscape plays a real prominent part in Bellini's paintings and in Bellini's career an element which is somehow present since the beginning of his career around the mid-1450s and then it goes on and on throughout his entire career and to me it's fascinating to see how the landscape is very important since the beginning but there is also a strong evolution and Bellini went in the 1480s and then at the end of the 15th century, when he's really mature and a fully formed artist, he's really able to create his entirely own vision of landscape. Obviously, landscape is not an independent theme. We are in the Renaissance, we are in the Quattrocento, and landscape is always a background for another theme, for for the main theme of his paintings. and. Bellini is mainly a religious painter, so all the paintings in the exhibition, they show a religious subject. But the landscape plays a role in some way enhancing the theme of the paintings, and enhancing some way the meditational role of these paintings, which are almost all destined to, for private devotion.
0: In your essay in the show's catalog, you call our attention to the difference between, and excuse my truly horrid Italian pronunciation, paesi and paesaggio. So, first, fix my pronunciation. <laughs> and secondly, why is that an important distinction, especially here, especially for Bellini?
1: I think that to me, the question of the use of the Italian word is very important because for us, really, paesaggio which can be translated in English as landscape is, is something is a sort of a it's a sort of an independent genre which emerges during the 16th century and it will become really an independent theme for painting only from the early seventeenth century. So the first occurrence of the the first documented use in Italian of the word paesaggio is in the mid fifteen is in the fifteen fifties and before landscapes are called paesi or it it is used also another word which I try to explore a little bit in my essay in the catalogue, which is the word lontani, which we can translate with sort of distant views, and I think this is important to understand that these things were perceived as the background of the paintings, and this is why there is not a real word to to identify a landscape, so a paesaggio, but there are several words. Paesi, which means uh, villages, uh, or Lontani, which means distant views. And to me, the most important evidence we have of uh, really Bellini himself uh, talking and describing his landscape is this uh, letter which was sent by an agent of the famous Marquis of Mantua, Isabella d'Este, in which he says that Bellini proposes to the Marchioness to execute a painting with a religious theme and in the background with uh, and with some lontani, so some distant views and fantasies. So the landscape was, for Bellini, something important, something that characterized in some way his specific approach to painting, something at that point in his career, something of a trademark in some way. But then there is this other word, the fantasies, So the landscape becomes the place in the painting which is uh, for the painter, which which is uh, reserved in some way for the painter. It's the part of the painting where he can put things that come out from his own fantasy.
0: One of the things you note in your catalog essay is that over the course of Bellini's career... We go from looking at the landscapes behind people, if you will, such as in in the first Jerome painting in the show, the 1455-ish painting, to to landscape emerging as a co-equal subject, a, a Bellini making landscape as important as the people or the saints, for example, within a painting. Why why did, why does he do that? What does that tell us about his his way of thinking about either painting or, or the various Catholic stories he's telling?
1: I think in Bellini, I would say, since the beginning, landscape is very important in some way to establish the mood of the painting. And Bellini is really a master, I think, in evoking atmospheres, precise moments of the day, like in a, in a very early painting, like the Agony in the Garden in the National Gallery in London, usually dated around 1460, so an early painting There is already a vast and expanse landscape, and landscape which evokes uh, something that was familiar for the contemporary viewer, especially for his Venetian patrons. So a landscape which evokes the mainland of Venice and also which evokes the particular moment of the day in which the scene takes place. It can be dawn, dusk, can be sunset. And this is this is going throughout the entire career of Bellini. And, and I think Bellini is, is the most accomplished painter in the Quattrocento in evoking really atmosphere's moment of the day and creating a really a mood which helps to understand the scene and and the, the the subject of the picture. But it's true, as you were saying, that there is also an evolution. And at some point, I would say in Bellini's mid-career, when Bellini is fully mature around 1480, at some point, uh, really landscape assumes a prominence which is Totally unprecedented in the history of Italian painting and completely new. I think, in some way, the symbol of this turning point is his uh, great painting of St. Francis in the desert, which is in the Flick Collection in New York today. And in this painting, in some way, for the first time in the history of Italian painting, the traditional hierarchy of figure and landscape, figure and background, is inverted. And we have, it's true, we have St. Francis in the middle of the picture, and he is probably receiving the stigmata, but the setting, this uh, vast and expanse landscape that surrounds uh, the, the scent is really becoming the protagonist. And obviously, there is... A precise meaning in this because Bellini is emphasizing, I think, the beauty of the creation of God, the fact that Saint Francis is living in the middle of nature, the fact that Saint Francis is in the wilderness. Unfortunately, uh, obviously the Frick painting, probably one of the greatest Italian paintings in this country, cannot travel and it never travels But I think in the exhibition we have three major paintings which are very close in spirit, uh, in mood to the St. Francis in the Free Collection. And these are the three St. Jerome's the early one from Birmingham, uh, the one from mid career from the National Gallery in London, and the late one from Washington. And, And so in these three paintings, they are really. Extremely original paintings, and and I think uh, they are more and more original as uh, uh, as far as Bellini become, becomes older, and because in Birmingham the Saint Jerome is uh, the, the entire painting. I think is is uh, still very close to the painting of Bellini's father Jacopo. The style of the painting is also very much inspired by the style of his uh, brother-in-law, Andrea Mantegna, the, the, the type of rock. And also there is is—it's already a personal creation in the sense that Bellini conflates different tradition of uh, the representation of St. Jerome, the tradition of representing St. Jerome as a scholar, as a learned man, as the translator of the Bible, but also as a penitent, as an hermit uh, in the desert. And in the Birmingham painting, there is also a, so a narrative component because uh, the, uh, of the sort of the encounter between St. Jerome and the lion, the famous episode of St. Jerome removing horn from the Poe of the Lion is in some way the protagonist of the painting. So it's a painting where there is still a sort of a narrative character While in the subsequent two pictures of St. Jerome, uh, the mood is, I would say, totally contemplative and uh, there is no action, basically. And in London, the saint is represented reading, concentrated really in reading in his remote habitat, in the remote wilderness. And there is really a And Bellini emphasizes the contrast, the very strong contrast between the wilderness, the remote habitat, the hermitage of Saint Jerome, and and in the background, the civilized world, the civilized world that the saint uh, abandoned, that the saint left behind him. To live in the in the in the desert, and there is a beautiful, uh, uh, wonderful representation of a walled town, which again uh, reminds a contemporary uh, city of the Venetian la- mainland. In the catalogue, we reproduced uh, a, a city, uh, the city of Marostica, in uh, which is in the Venetian mainland at the foot of the Alps, which is very close. To the city represented by Bellini in the in the background and, and and then in the in the third painting by Saint Jerome, the painting in Washington is a sort of a variation on the same theme. The invention is very similar. The Saint is represented in his cave in the wilderness in his hermitage, and he again he is uh, uh, representing in the act of reading there is a total silence. this is another wonderful character of of the ability of Bellini to to suggest also silence in the painting. We see a little lizard moving among the small pebbles. Uh, There is this incredible representation of the cistern with the water inside and also the representation of this sort of micrography of plants, flowers, rocks and he's even more secluded in his hermitage than in the painting in London. And then, again, it opens up in the background a wonderful landscape. This time in Washington is in a sort of a variation, not a a sort of a contemporary landscape, but some ruins and a distant view of the lagoon. Again, a mix of invention and a depiction of Places which were familiar for the experience of the contemporary viewer. These paintings, they, they, obviously, they, we have to think to their patrons, to their, to the people who commissioned the paintings. They were probably or scholars for whom the figure of Saint Jerome uh, represented a model in some way, a model of Christian piety combined with the, with the highest degree of classical learning, of knowledge of classical literature, or also Venetian patricians who more and more were interested in culture, who more and more were trying to, I would say, not avoid their political and social duties, but they were in love with the classical literature they started to buy properties in the mainland of venice they started to build villas we are really at this time we are at the beginning of the culture of the famous venetian villas in the mainland so venice is turning some way back from the sea and is looking at the mainland is looking at the land and i think in some way these paintings by Bellini also, they represent this particular specific moment of the history of Venice.
0: Is that why there are so many paths and roads in the paintings that we are meant to think of Venice's connection to to the
1: mainland? Yes, I think that, uh, you know, we know that also Bellini, in one of his letters, there are, you know, very few literary and Documents about Bellini's life, really, but there is a one letter in which uh, he speaks about a certain villa he owned in the mainland and the path. So the landscape. Bellini's landscapes are really a mixture of fantasy and reality. They are built up. They are not real, but they, are, but they suggest something that was real and was part of the everyday experience, I think, of the viewers, of, the, of, con- of contemporary viewers. And the paths. sometimes they really suggest a sort of a trail, a sort of a um, spiritual also uh, path. For example, in one of the greatest paintings in the exhibition, the Fabulous Crucifixion from the collection of the Banca Popolare di Vicenza, which actually was really the starting point for my idea of devoting an exhibition to Bellini landscape. In this painting, obviously, there is a sort of a progression in the landscape. The painting is the, the composition of the painting, the, the way in which the painting is uh, uh, designed, is uh, to me is uh, extremely striking because the, the cross, the cross uh, in some way occupies the entire fourth sound of the painting. The, the cross goes from bottom to top, and it's really placed in the threshold between us, between the viewers, between us, and the, the fictive, in some way, space of the painting. Uh, so it's very striking. It's placed in, really in front of our eyes and close to us and then it opens up this wonderful landscape with, which has some different planes. That is the, third, the very first plane where, you, where the cross is really planted on the rocks with the incredible representation of, of this uh, cemetery with skulls, with tombstones, with uh, inscription in Hebrew and So it's suggesting that the Golgotha was uh, uh, the place of a graveyard, was the place of a cemetery. And then in the cemetery, there are these uh, bare trees. And these are, I think these are uh, for sure a symbol. These are a symbol of the paganism of a, a you know, a bear, the bare trees are the symbol of a dry uh, religion of the past. And then you go, you go up, you go towards, towards the the background and you have a a sort of a contemporary meal and with people walking but you have also a wonderful uh, tree with a lush tree with uh, a lot of leaves uh, which suggests really the fact that uh, you know with the sacrifice of Christ the salvation, the, the sacrifice of Christ provides salvation for humanity and a regeneration. And then the city in the background, again, the city in the background is symbolic. It's a view, ideal view of Jerusalem, but it's also the, the celestial Jerusalem. And but also, it's also a real place. It's a combination of real and fantasy. And some of the buildings are really also recognizable, precisely recognizable. And they are evidently, Bellini evidently remembers, sketched some of these buildings during his trips. We know that he executed several paintings for the city of Vicenza. And in fact, some of the buildings of the landscape in this painting are from Vicenza. There is the facade of the cathedral of Vicenza, there is a tower Uh, There are two towers from Vicenza, uh, but also there is uh, very prominently on the left uh, of the body of Christ depiction of the Cathedral of Ancona, so another Italian city in the region of the Marche, where Bellini probably has been uh, traveling when he installed his wonderful famous altarpiece in Pesaro. We don't know why, if there is a precise symbolism, if there's the choice of representing uh, buildings from Vicenza and from Ancona in the same painting can be tied with perhaps with the personality of the patron could have had ties with, with both cities so we don't know but uh, or, we, we, or we can also th- simply think that Bellini just uh, used the exercises the sketches that he made in these places to build up this uh, incredibly beautiful view of an ideal Jerusalem city he never saw, and so he had to reconstruct with his uh, imagination.
0: You know, you mentioned a few moments ago the lizard in the foreground of the Washington St. Jerome. There is a lizard in the foreground of this crucifixion we've been discussing. By the way, we'll have images of all of these at manpodcast.com. And there's also a lizard in lots of other Bellini paintings, including the Jerome at the Uffizi. So why why these lizards and why lizards in paintings that are you know I mean a Jerome is not a crucifixion.
1: Yes, I think my idea of the presence of animals, I think animals they mainly suggest natural environment. Some more sometimes the wilderness. They really suggest that we are in the wilderness. So they are as you say they are repeated. And, and so, to me, they suggest the wilderness. They suggest a wild place. They suggest nature. They just suggest nature. And it's like the I think it's like the bunnies, the bunnies or the hares. Uh, they they suggest a place which is in nature. And it's possible that they they are metaphors. But I um, I'm. Mainly think that uh, we have to be very careful in uh, over-interpreting the many details in these paintings as uh, metaphors or symbols. It's possible sometimes, like the the bunny in the in, uh, the rabbit in the foreground, for example, of the Birmingham pin- painting, the beautiful rabbit on the left uh, in the in the foreground, which is emerging from a sort of a hole in the the terrain can be a metaphor for for uh, for the hermit's life in a cave, but I think that we we have to be careful in interpreting every single element as a metaphor. I think the the important the most important thing to me was is the overall meaning of the landscape. The, the in some way the ultimate significance of the landscape, which is really the celebration of the beauty of God's creation, the variety of Gods creation, and the harmony between uh, humankind and nature and and to suggest also that we are in nature so donkeys, rabbits, uh, hares uh, and uh, they are uh, they all they all suggest nature they all suggest the, or, or nature or, or wilderness. The case of the hares uh, or bunnies is particularly interesting because, for example, in the exhibition, we see two instances of the presence of a couple of hares, one in the Blessing Christ from the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, where on the left uh, in the landscape, you can see these two hares, one white and one brown in this case i think they both suggest uh, nature but they can also they can also really be suggesting regeneration and and this is to me pretty clear in the 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 blessing christ because the blessing cry in the blessing christ there are some symbolic uh, element clear symbolic elements uh, uh, in these landscapes the the painting is almost entirely you know, occupied by the figure the half length figure of Christ uh, representing in, uh, in this incredible close up and again like uh, in the crucifix from Vicenza the figure is uh, is is between is really between us and the background is is coming is looking to us is taking us into the painting in a very strong and emotional way and is looking his gaze is towards us and then the landscape is profoundly symbolical in some way because you have a symbolical but also suggesting some narrative elements first of all you have the the wonderful representation of sunset so Uh, of sunrise, sorry. So the moment of the day in which uh, the three Marys, which are very, which are representing in the background uh, of the painting uh, on the right, the three Marys are walking towards the tomb, which will they find empty. So, and and there is this incredible representation of a sunrise when the colors uh, ranging from pink uh, to violet, It's amazing how how Bellini really evolved this moment of the day. But then on the left of the painting, you have a a bare tree, but with the the first leaves coming coming out. And this is clearly an, an emblem, a symbol of regeneration, of the rebirth of nature in correspondence to the resurrection of Christ. And the hares, too, I think they they represent, they are here a symbol of regeneration, regeneration of nature and in correspondence with the resurrection. But the same couple of hares or bunnies, they appear in the St. Jerome in Washington. And again, here they are really in the threshold between the... The land, the, the distant landscape, and the and the cave, and and here I think they are more like the lizard. They are more suggesting the wilderness that we are in a remote, secluded place, distant from civilization.
0: We'll have details of of the bunnies and of that sunrise in Christ's blessing uh, on manpodcast. dot com. Uh, the number of the horizon lines in um, the paintings in the show are, are, are really something else. I want to go back to try to understand how Bellini comes to landscape. And I want to ask about that in, in two ways. One, how important was Flemish painting in, in leading Bellini to landscape? And what Flemish painting and what Flemish landscape might he have jumped off from?
1: I think Flemish paintings was extremely important for driving Bellini, for yes, driving his attention to uh, the representation of landscape. We can we can look, for example, at the Crucifixion today in the Museo Correr in Venice, which is in the exhibition. And this painting, to me, is a is an early work. It's uh, beautiful and refined in some way as an illumination. It's pretty small, like 25 uh, per 11 inches, 21 per 11 inches. And there, I think uh, we see um, very well the um, two main components of Bellini's language, uh, Bellini's style in his uh, early years. The foreground with this sort of rocky, very rocky plateau where the figure of the Virgin and St. John the Evangelist are standing flanking the crucified Christ, is very much inspired by the paintings of his brother-in-law Mantegna. Mantegna had a very important role in uh, defining the style of Bellini. Bellini is uh, probably, together with Raphael, is one of the greatest Italian painters able to in some way assimilate the language of other painters, the style of other painters to look what what was happening around the, them in terms of the art and they were able to capture in a in their own way uh, what was happening around. So Bellini's career is really marked by encounters, with painters with the work of other painters that help him to 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 grow to to grow here we can see really his intense dialogue with Mantegna in the foreground but then in the background we see i think we we clearly see his dialogue with Flemish painters And in the creation of these very low, the the low horizon, this kind of landscape which opens up that is very deep uh, and with all uh, filled with details, with figures, with plants, with this winding river. Uh, And we have to always remember that uh, Flemish painting was very, very popular in Italy at the time. It was very popular in Florence, was very popular in Venice. We know we have descriptions of collections, of private collections in Venice, where we find a lot of Flemish paintings. But also, it's highly probable that there were important Flemish paintings also in churches. And there is a specific case that I, I would like to mention which is uh, the case of several paintings now dispersed in different collections in Europe and in America in London and the National Gallery in Brussels in here uh, in Pasadena in California which is a series, series of canvas by the Flemish painter Dirich Bouts and uh, they are painted on canvas and so this suggests that they were probably intended for export that so they were intended to be sent somewhere and in several of these canvases you can see details of the landscape uh, which clearly inspired uh, Italian artists and Bellini specifically. And the Resurrection, the painting, uh, the beautiful canvas by Dirich Baust with the Resurrection, which is today here in the Norton Simon in Pasadena, was clearly an an inspiration for Bellini and for his wonderful resurrection today in Berlin. So the the micrography of uh, Flemish landscapes, this taste of small details, was something that was extremely appreciated. This ability to portray nature uh, was something that struck the imagination of both Italian artists at the time and Italian patrons. The other case incredible, I have to say, of uh, the importance of the example of Flemish paintings for Italian artists and for Bellini specifically, I think is the painting by Jan van Eyck, uh, the St. Francis receiving the stigmata. We know two versions of this painting today. One is in Turin in Italy and the other one is in Philadelphia. We know for sure that One of these two was owned by a a merchant from Bruges, Ansel Madorno, and this merchant from Bruges traveled to the Holy Land in the 1470s. And traveling to the Holy Land, he stopped in Italy, he stopped in Florence, and he stopped in Venice. We know even exactly the date when he was in Venice. And uh, we are, I think, we can be confidently sure that painters in Florence, painters like Filippo Lippi but also Leonardo da Vinci and Botticelli, and in Venice, uh, for sure, Bellini, they saw these small, small paintings that probably Anselm Adorno was carrying with him. And, he, and they were struck by the uh, incredible detailed representation of landscape and, and the rocks, and especially by the rocks, there is this incredible rock on the on the background in the background uh, on the left, on the right um, uh, portion of the painting. And this rock is uh, really literally
2: quoted
1: by Bellini many years later in the Saint Jerome in the paintings uh, of the Saint Jerome today in Washington. So these paintings, uh, these Flemish paintings, and especially the incredible masterpiece by Van Eyck, they had an enormous impact on uh, the imagination of Italian painters and of Bellini too.
0: We'll have images of of all all three of those paintings, the the, the boats at the Norton Simon and the Van Eycks in Philly and Turin on on the website. You mentioned Mantegna. What in particular does Bellini take from Mantegna's landscapes?
1: At the beginning of Bellini's career, the example of Mantegna is really crucial, and so I think in the, in the exhibition, two paintings speak about the relation, the strong relation with Mantegna. The first one is the Saint Jerome in Birmingham, where obviously Bellini is also looking to the work of his father Jacopo, especially he's looking to Jacopo's famous book of drawings that are two incredible book of drawings uh, that's called Bellini sketchbooks by Jacopo Bellini, one today in the Louvre, the other in the British Museum, and they were obviously very well known to Giovanni and also to his brother Gentile, and they were kept in the, in the workshop and used uh, so Bellini's early paintings, they obviously, they show a, a strong depth to Jacopo's drawings, and there is especially one beautiful drawing, which is reproduced in the catalogue of the Saint Jerome in the Wilderness by Jacopo Bellini, which clearly, in the type of rock formations, uh, really inspired uh, uh, Giovanni, but also Mantegna. I think Mantegna is at is the beginning of Bellini's career very important, and the, the The rocky cave of the Birmingham painting is very much inspired by an incredible painting by Mantegna with the same subject, the St. Jerome in the Wilderness, which is today in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. And these are not real rocks. They are very much uh, uh, inventions. They are so strange, uh, so curious. And so you can see really here the dialogue. It's a pain, it's an incredible painting, the Birmingham painting by Giovanni, because you can really see the dialogue with Mantegna and with his father Jacopo at the same time. And then you already see, or at least I see already very well the the personality, the character, the, the originality of Giovanni, especially in the wonderful landscape which opens out in the background in the, on the right, which is already this kind of lyrical landscape, which I think is really the hallmark of Bellini's contribution to the history of landscape. Is landscape sometimes uh, Mantegna's landscapes are more sort of erudite, they are archaeological, they are they suggest antiquity, while Bellini's landscapes are more calm. They are always lyrical. They are extremely poetical. And so this this is the the great, I think, distinction, the great difference between them. So obviously Bellini here is young. He's looking to Mantegna, but he's already he's already creating something which is really very personal. Also in the crucifixion in the Museo Correra obviously there is a, a depth to Mantegna in the way in which the rocks are represented. But since the beginning uh, and in the painting in the Louvre, clearly in the crucifixion from the Louvre, clearly again uh, in the very precise way of drawing the figures, there is uh, in Dialogue with Mantegna is very is is uh, is really palpable, and also in the representation of the rocks. But again, when you look in the distances, when you look in at the in the very uh, background of the painting, you already see the kind of landscape which uh, will make Giovanni. The greatest landscape painter of the second half of the Quattrocento, and and to me, this really this uh, extremely poetical and lyrical nature of Giovanni, which is really his, uh, I would say, his trademark.
0: Marvelous! Sure to be uh, one of the shows of the year. I can't wait to see it myself. Davide Gasparotto, thanks so much for speaking with me.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you about this wonderful uh, painter.
0: Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the Wex. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity, and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more. And it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the WEX galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe. Through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts. In a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life. Casanova, the seduction of Europe. Through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. Welcome back. It's a huge week for art and philanthropy in America, as two New England couples have given the MFA Boston 113 works by 76 17th century Dutch and Flemish artists. In addition to a remarkable trove of art, which I partially detailed in the introduction, and about which you'll soon hear plenty more, Rosemary and Ike van Otterloo have given to the MFA the 20,000-volume library built by Egbert Haverkamp Begeman, a Dutch-American art historian who taught at NYU's Institute of Fine Arts and at Yale University. All this will enable the MFA to create the Center for Netherlandish Art in around 2020. My guest is Ronnie Baer, the MFA's Senior Curator and a Specialist in the Dutch Golden Age. Ronnie Baer, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes Podcast, and congratulations.
2: Thank you so much, Tyler. It's good to be with you.
0: So when and how did this get done?
2: This was a very long time in coming, I think. There's not a specific moment in time where it got done. I think this is something that both sets of collectors have been thinking seriously about for a very long time. They've been talking, the couples talk to each other. Eventually, the couples talk to our institution. There's not a moment, but it was done with a tremendous amount of deliberation and a great interest in sharing these amazing collections.
0: I can't recall an instance of an institution receiving a major gift, and this is two major gifts, and having those two collectors present the gift together as one. Do you know why it happened that way and what does it say about, I don't know, institutional commitment or the focus of what the museum and the donors hope comes out of the gift?
2: I think they were both very preoccupied with what would be their legacy. I think they're both very serious minded and are committed to the continued study of Dutch and Flemish painting. There are not that many people teaching in the field today. This provides an amazing opportunity. It's really kind of the bedrock of what will become a Netherlandish study center here at the MFA in Boston, where we can begin to train the next generation of curators and conservators and interest a new generation of the public in these amazing works. So I think it was the seriousness of purpose. I think it was a real generous spirit. These people are incredibly civic-minded and it all came together to our great benefit and delight.
0: We'll talk about the study center in a moment, but give us an idea of how this gift will change how you and the museum are able to show Dutch and Flemish art. And will it, will will the gift result in changes to how much space the museum gives to Dutch and Flemish art?
2: Well, that's an easy one. I mean, I think there are over 40 new artists that will be introduced into our collection by this gift. So imagine the number of particular painters whose works we'll be able to introduce to the public. And then you have the aspect of important artists whose work we'll be able to see in depth. So there are instances where two or more paintings by the same artists are coming into the collection and may complement holdings at the MFA that we already have. So we'll both be able to broaden the uh, scope of artists that we're able to present and and deepen it. So that it's an extraordinary opportunity. We'll also be able to combine these different paintings in different ways and tell stories about what Holland was like in the 17th century or how Rubens actually painted because we're going to get to oil sketches that will complement another one of our oil sketches. So we'll be able to go into technique and working method. The variations and and opportunities are really boundless. And we'll also be able to really look in depth at the different categories of paintings. The 17th century was completely ripe with new inventions, the cityscape, the architectural paintings, the Incredible explosion of still life and landscapes. These are all aspects of Dutch painting that we've been able to only present in a sporadic way.
0: Do you know if the museum has plans to expand the square footage it gives to Dutch or Flemish, Dutch and Flemish art, or is that all TBD?
2: I think it's TBD. So
0: you mentioned new strengths and opportunities. I pulled out a couple that I I thought would be fun to bring up. You know, along with Rembrandt, maybe the greatest painter of the Dutch Golden Age is, is Jacob van Rysdale, who's well held in American collections. There are four at the National Gallery, five at the Met, three at the L.A. County Museum of Art, and you now have eight.
2: Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's kind of nuts.
0: It's amazing.
2: <laughs> so, but, so of those eight, with the combined collections of the three the three combined collections, we'll have three examples of his panoramic views of Harlem that are monumental in conception, but small in size. And you can see him playing with light, with space, with the cloud formations. It's quite amazing to see the three of those, what we call Harlemches together.
0: What does having eight Rysdales enable you to do? I mean, like... Is it the kind of thing where you want to throw all eight in a gallery, or do you want to put a Roysdale next to, say, your new and your first Phillips Connick? How do you, as a curator who gets to put this stuff in, in, into space, think about how, how to show it?
2: Well, right now, I had the opportunity to install about 40-some 40, 40 pictures in two galleries to celebrate this moment in time. And I chose one bay to devote one bay to Jakob van Rastal. And in that bay, I have the three harlinches together so that you can really see that development I was just talking about. There's also, though, a great winter scene by him. So it is in that bay, but it could just as easily be put with the Avrakop and an Art Vondrenair, and Ian van de Capella, and we can talk about how 17th century Holland was a little ice age and how the artists were interested in depicting not only the atmosphere, the cold atmosphere of Dutch winters, but also the fun people were having on the ice. And one of those paintings is really the only, one of the few paintings that show snow actually falling. There are so many stories that we can tell in so many ways that you can juxtapose these pictures. And you're right. I mean, you can put the Konink and Roystal together and talk about the panorama and how that might be different than the large Jakob van Ruisdael that shows the result of a trip that Jakob van Ruisdael took to Westphalia. And he came back in his studio and he created these very monumental landscapes that do not look Dutch at all. That's a whole different terrain. So, then you can talk about how the Dutch traveled in in the 17th century, and how, I mean, with these amazing marine paintings, we really don't have much in the way of of Dutch marines. We have a great, rare painting by Jacob and Rostal in the MFA's collection called Rough Sea,
0: which is a ridiculously awesome painting. I got to say that's one of my all-time
2: favorites. <laughs> it is. It's amazing, and it's really, as I said, it's rare and it's great, but. He's known as a landscape painter, right? So, so we have these awesome, awesome marines by Willem van de Velde, the younger, that allow us to, to start to talk about the importance of the sea to the Dutch, to the Dutch economy, to the Dutch people. You know, aspects that we skim the surface of in class distinctions. Now we'll be able to go deep in our own collection and tell stories like this
0: class distinctions being an exhibition you curated and that we featured on the podcast a couple years ago. Another couple areas in which the gift is strong and the museum is 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 now also church interiors. I think I counted four church interiors in the gift. What can you do with with that now?
2: Well, there are three church interiors by Sonradom who was the greatest of the greatest practitioner of that genre. And one is in the Weatherby collection, and one is in the Van Otterlo collection, and one is in the MFA collection, and we have those installed on a killer wall, at this point. And you see, first of all, he was. There are only about 60 paintings by this artist known, so there are three on the wall right now, and another one, a architectural view, will be coming with this gift as well. And you can see how carefully this artist measured the spaces, how accurately he could depict them because we have drawings by him where we see all of the measurements and everything. And then you can see the artistic license he takes by elongating a nave or heightening a vault for dramatic effect. But by seeing three of them together, you also can see the magic he creates with a very limited palette. So he'll have ochres and Whites and beiges, and this very limited palette that he makes symphonies from. Each painting is its own little symphony with this kind of limited group of notes. It's it's amazing.
0: You're also getting three Jan Steens. Any any anything in the Steens that is particularly great or notable?
2: Well, I think with the with the Jan Steen in our collection, the Twelfth Night Feast you really do get a sense of the versatility of this artist, that he can paint rough and he can paint smooth. He can paint human scenes and he can paint intent instruction. He can paint family. He can paint satire or irony. He's really versatile. And he was one of the more peripatetic Dutch artists. He really moved from place to place. Many Dutch Artists stayed put in their their towns, but Stain moved around and he really adopted stuff from artists that he encountered everywhere and came up with these amazing images that by turns are meant to be admonitory or to teach us a lesson or to entertain us or to record, you know, holidays and feasts. He's really quite great at human nature and human foibles and human joys. He's a, a wonderful artist.
0: The painting, An Elegant Company in an Interior with Figures Playing Cards at a Table, which we'll have on manpodcast.com, is a great example of that. It's funny. It's got a Peter de Hook re- reference uh, on on the right-hand side. I think it's got a dog. I mean, it's yeah, It's um, got everything. It It's full of narrative slyness.
2: Right, and they're cheating the poor man who um, one of them's plying him with drink and the woman's showing us her her cheating hand. It's fun.
0: You're also getting a bunch of cityscapes of a bunch of different cities, and not just Dutch cities. One of the cityscapes that you're getting is the Jan van der Heiden of Cologne. What about the cityscapes? Should we particularly take note of?
2: Well, like the architectural interior, cityscapes was a relatively new genre at this time, and we have very little in in the way of that at the MFA's collection. At present. So, this is again a whole wonderful new world for us to show our public. The Sonradam, who we just talked about as an inter- uh, an interior painter, a church interior painter, there's a great architectural painting by him of the Harlem Town Hall. So, we see him, in, in, in a sense, it's like our Jakob and Raj style rough sea. It's him doing a great thing with a type of painting for which he's not as well known. I think that's pretty remarkable. The Westerkerk by van der Heyden is an amazing record of life in Amsterdam in the 17th century. And in fact, it was such an important record that when they were restoring the Westerkerk last decade, I think, they used this painting to figure out what color to paint the, the crown of the church. So it's really, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It is a cityscape, which is this new kind of picture, but it's also an amazing study in light and shade, a very dramatic depiction of a very prosaic scene.
0: You also got a few things that I think I think are are really hard to find on the market or or, or available to museums, and one of them is Gerrit van Honthorst's musical scenes. Am I right?
2: This is an ex- especially important painting for the MFA because we have very good representations of the other two Utrecht Caravages, the the Utrecht painters who went to Rome and spent a decade studying Italian art, and especially coming under the sway of Caravaggio, and then coming back north. And so we have a wonderful Terbruchin, we have a wonderful Baburin, and now with this gift, we will have an amazing Hanthorst. It is a textbook example of what he learned in Rome and what he brought north with him.
0: So there are three portraits that particularly caught my eye. One, One's a Rembrandt, one's a Halls, one's a, one's a Dow. What about each of those should we know?
2: Well, the Rembrandt is a supreme example of his portraiture. It's in the finest condition you would want in a Rembrandt of any kind. And we really can see the warmth of the humanity that he's able to capture, but also his facility with a brush His use of tone on tone in terms of being actually able to see the design of her costume black on black, which is something that's often lost because of the condition of these pictures. You can see how he varies the the amount of pigment on his brush to either describe a white opaque collar or a translucent piece of headgear the way he's placed that figure in space so that her outline is a it's, a it's a dancing calligraphy of line, if you will, the way that the fur collar stands up against the background in those spiky strokes. It's just a fantastic example of his ability to capture his sitter. The Hulse is a different scale, so it's a very small picture. And that's interesting because it's the picture of a of a preacher, and it complements the halls already in our collection, which shows a a very modish man in in what we know as a yaponsa rock or a kind of Japanese kind of house coat so you've got this more sober image, and you've got this kind of dandy image, but both of them show the the vitality and vivacity of Hall's brushwork, which is inimitable. And then Dow, we have this late Dow self-portrait where he's throwing everything he can into that image to show you what a great virtuosic painter he is. And, you know, it's wonderful to be able to think about that painting by Dow and our early Rembrandt artist in his studio, which was in Leiden at the time Dow became Rembrandt's first pupil. And so you've got the small painting by Rembrandt that's rather broadly brushed and that that shows the enormity of the task facing the artist as he confronts his, we assume, his empty panel on an easel. And then you've got Dow that's giving you the kind of copiousness and detail for which he was so highly prized.
0: And I guess I could have mentioned the Van Dyke portrait, too, but I didn't
2: yeah there's lots you know we could sit here for hours and talk about the riches of this collection because they are many.
0: We've been talking about specific paintings and what you can do in terms of showing the museum's collection or what is now the museum's collection
2: will be the museum's collection it
0: will be the yeah. Two kind of broader questions. First, you mentioned earlier the study center as part of, uh, of, of of the gift, the museum is receiving a library of twenty thousand volumes. What does the study center enable the museum to do now that it couldn't do before and twenty thousand volumes? Good Lord, what what are you getting there?
2: Well, so this is the library of Egbert HavercomptBegamon, who happens to have been my teacher. and he only died two months ago. And he was a bibliomaniac. And I think many of his students inherited that horrible trait so that we can never move. <laughs> it's, it, it's an amazing repository of, of books on the, on the topic of Dutch art and Flemish art of the 17th century. It goes back in time and it comes up to the present. I remember visiting him any number of times in his office and there was a table that was just piled high with his new acquisitions and you wonder when he was going to get around to it but somehow he managed to look at all of these books and he managed to kind of shoehorn them into his office so the fact that we will now have these this amazing resource as you know, one of the foundational aspects of the Dutch Study Center is, again, something that really can't be duplicated. It will be open to scholars. It will be open to the public. We'll be able to, when we're teaching from the collection or when we're helping other uh, institutions put together exhibitions or helping travel exhibitions, it's, it's a go-to resource for all of us.
0: Will that change your relationship or enable a different relationship with the New England University community?
2: I, I expect it will, yes. I think that one of the aspirations, and of course the details of the study center have not been worked out quite yet, and so we're not ready to make any you know formal announcements, but I think one of the aspirational aspects is to be working with museums and universities in New England and the world and help local professors bring classes in and maybe devise exhibitions of their own own thinking to help train people how to think about putting exhibitions together, what goes into it, receive their ideas and new ways of looking at this material that I'm familiar with, but I'm sure that I can learn to look at them with new eyes because, you know, everybody sees this this material differently so it's an amazing opportunity to collaborate you know generously with partners not only in New England but throughout the United States and, and into Europe
0: finally you surely have lots of work to do integrating all this stuff into your collection both paintings and 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 the library and all of it but Is there an exhibition or are there exhibitions that you've thought about in the past that this might make possible?
2: I think about a lot of exhibitions. (laughs) I think about a lot of exhibitions. I haven't thought of an exhibition with this gift in mind necessarily, although we are going to travel a good part of it, I think, in the years coming up. And I have my own ideas about contributing to scholarship in other exhibitions I'd like to see happen, that would probably include paintings from these collections. I can't imagine it wouldn't.
0: Well, Ronnie Bear, congratulations again, and thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Tyler. It's great talking with you.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.